0: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.
0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. In June 1942, the US and Japanese navies went head-to-head over a small atoll in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. The Battle of Midway has gone down in history as one of the definitive naval battles of the Second World War. But what was behind the American victory? And was it even as significant as has been suggested? Brendan Sims and Stephen McGregor re examine the clash in their new book, The Silver Waterfall, and I spoke to them to find out more. The first voice you'll hear after me is Brendan. So for anyone listening who might not know much about the Battle of Midway, could you give us a little crib sheet? What are the basic facts here?
2: Well, the battle is really the the beginning of the end for the Imperial Japanese Navy. So this, this was a navy which, is, as uh, most people will know, had been romping across uh, the Pacific ever since uh, the 7th of December 1941, when the Japanese striking force, the Kido Butai, had hit uh, the American uh, Pacific Fleet in a, a surprise attack uh, at Pearl Harbor, uh, and since that moment, uh, the Japanese had captured Hong Kong, uh, they captured Singapore, uh, they were well on their way to capturing uh, the Philippines. That wasn't quite complete yet. So Imperial Japan was 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 absolutely dominant uh, in the Far East and uh, in in the Pacific, uh, and yet. Uh, On this particular day, on the 4th of June uh, 1942, the uh, uh, U.S. Navy, particularly uh, its dive bomber force, uh, tore the heart, essentially, out of the Kido Butai, the striking force, and sank four of its six major carriers. So while you can dispute whether or not Midway really was uh, the turning point of the war in the Pacific, um, it, it certainly was the first major... Uh, U.S. victory and uh, psychologically represented a, a, a sort of a watershed.
0: Can you tell us about how you both came to the story of the Battle of Midway?
2: Well, I've been fascinated by the Battle of Midway ever since I was a boy. So I saw the original 1976 movie with Charlton Heston and uh, was mesmerized by it. it. was, in a sense, traumatized as well because it features a lot of death and, and uh, um destruction. And ever since then, I haven't really been able to get the battle out of my head as a pivotal moment in the Second World War. And I then teamed up with uh, Steve, who, unlike myself, actually has experience of fighting in a war. And so while neither of us were uh, or are Navy men, uh, we both brought something to this party.
3: Yeah, I came to it in 2019. And I had, left the, I had left the Army by then. Uh, I was in the U.S. Army, and I was studying history at Cambridge, and Brendan was my supervisor and mentioned the battle to me uh, as, as, a, as something we could, we could look at um, together. And um, it was an incredible chance to look at this, this, in, this, probably the most important battle in U.S. naval history.
0: Do you think that your Army experience gives you a, a different perspective on it?
3: One of the interesting things about, about the battles, there's actually quite a few uh, first-hand accounts written by veterans of the uh, of the battle, both on the U.S. and the Japanese side. Uh, certainly, Dusty Kleiss, one of the most important figures for us, he does say, you know, you have to be cautious about what veterans tell you because they always sort of make themselves to, to always have done the right thing or to have been the hero. You're always having to sort of question them and, and, and for good reason I suppose but but they are interesting and I guess it, it certainly made me think about how, how the experience of war can be something unforgettable um, but then also how it can be uh, um, a memory that its significance changes for you over time
0: you say in the book there's a really interesting quote which is this is war as pure as it could be what do you mean by that
3: it was fought only between men who had sailed thousands of miles to be there. You know, you think about so many of the other important battles in the Second World War, and they're known for the places uh, where they took place. And in, in in some respects, they are an attack on those places themselves. But Midway is, is exceptional when you think about how everyone who took place in the battle wasn't from there. They, they sailed to be there. They wanted to fight in that place and in that time. So I think in a, in a strange way, it is kind of like a pure battle, a pure, a pure aspect of war.
0: And Midway itself, what can you tell us about it? Why was that such an important strategical point? And what did the Japanese hope to achieve by attacking Midway?
2: In a paradoxical sense, the island itself was not the important part. It it marks, as its name suggests, the sort of Midway uh, in the Pacific. Uh, So it had a a certain strategic value, certainly. But uh, the reason why the Japanese decided to attack Midway was in the conception of of the, 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 the architect, the mastermind of the campaign, Admiral Yamamoto. It was really as a bait that they would attack Midway Island that the American fleet, the three aircraft carriers which had survived the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor because they'd been out of the harbor at that moment, that they would then be lured out to a place outside on the high seas and that would then in turn be destroyed by the Japanese Navy. So it was a trap, uh, but in fact it was a trap uh, into which the Japanese fell themselves.
0: A lot of what you look at in the book is why the U.S. were victorious at Midway. So maybe we'll dig into a few of these in more depth. But to start us off, what were some of the the U.S. successes at Midway that led to their victory?
3: One aspect of the U.S. victory has to do with the way they positioned their carriers. The U.S. used their carriers as a capital ship, as what was known as a capital ship. Previously, this had been the battleship. And the U.S. would position their carriers in the center. Uh, they would sail out um, individually in the center of a host of supporting ships. They called it a circular formation because these supporting ships would go in a circle around the carrier. And they would send these carriers out um, independently uh, of each other, sometimes in groups working together, but they would move out independently And it's interesting, if you read Churchill's um, account of the Second World War, he says that the British sort of pioneered this formation um, because they put it to use in 1940 uh, when they have to cover the entire Atlantic. When they uh, enter the war uh, the previous year, they need to cover the entire Atlantic. So they do this by the use of what they call hunting groups, where the carrier is the capital ship. And the Japanese, by contrast, they, they group all their carriers together. They like to mass their carriers so in the case of Midway, all four Japanese carriers are, are placed next to each other, uh, whereas the U.S. ones are separate. And the reason this makes a difference is because if you can find the Japanese, then you've found all of them. They're much more vulnerable. Um, and this ended up playing a huge role both in uh, the vulnerability of the Japanese, but then the um, protection uh, of the U.S. Because the U.S. carriers are separate. so when the Japanese find one. They've only found the Yorktown. They haven't found the other two carriers. So in some ways it had to do with how they positioned their ships, which in, in the U.S. case went back to Admiral Chester Nimitz. And so it, it had to do with his um, decision about the way he wanted to approach the battle.
0: So it's fair to say that the the U.S. Were, were strong strategically when it came to Midway?
2: They were not only strong strategically, they were also strong tactically. So the strategic strength lay in the fact that they could read the Japanese codes. Uh, And they could make what was an informed guess, but nevertheless an informed one, uh, as to where the Japanese would be. So Admiral Nimitz would be able to put his carriers and his aeroplanes on top, uh, as Steve says, of the entire Japanese force, unawares. But the other point is they're also strong tactically, in the sense that they had a very strong dive bomber force. And that's really the focus of our book, is the development of dive bombing in the United States, and in particular, the development of a very powerful and rugged dive bomber, uh, the Douglas Dauntless. And so this is a story really around U.S. technical innovation, around the way in which 1920s and 1930s California generates uh, a whole subculture, if you like, which makes possible uh, an aviation industry which creates the Dauntless, uh, which in turn proves to be a battle-winning weapon. So our story really begins uh, 20 years or so before the battle itself.
0: And why was dive bombing so important? Why was it battle-winning?
2: Well, dive bombing was much more accurate than the other forms of bombing. You really had a choice between level bombing, which was flying straight and level, and dropping your bombs in the classic sense of say, the RAF bombing campaign over Germany. Um, but the problem is that you have to be you have to allow for a lot of deflection, a lot of wind and so on. It's very inaccurate essentially. Then you've got torpedo bombing, which is more accurate if you can draw a bead uh, on the enemy ship. The trouble is it's extremely hazardous. So you have to fly slow and low for a very long time during which you can be attacked. First of all, by the combat air patrol, the dreaded cap of the Japanese. But secondly, of course, you can be hit by the anti-aircraft weapons. And not least of the problems is that the U.S. torpedo was very bad. So even if you did hit the ship, very often the torpedo did not explode. Dive bombing, by contrast, involves essentially plunging down uh, from several thousand feet onto the enemy ship which if you can do this holding your nerve, and if you have an aeroplane which doesn't disintegrate, which is what the Dauntless uh, famously did not do, um, and if you have a bomb, particularly the £1,000 bomb, uh, which is effective, then uh, you have a chance to deliver real damage against the enemy. And that's exactly what the Americans did on the 4th of June.
0: You have a really horrifying account of what it would have been like to pilot a dive-bombing Plane. I wonder if one of you could share that with us.
3: Dusty Kleiss. He wrote a, an autobiography in 2016. He talks about um, everything that he went through in a dive bombing run. And they came down from about 20,000 feet. They would they would be watching their target below and uh, noting its its direction of travel and its speed because that they wanted to do is be able to come down um, right on top of whatever it is they were trying to destroy and. He would then prepare his engine uh, to accept the richer air at, at sea level because at altitude your air is thinner so he prepare his engine um, to take the richer air of sea level he would uh, stow all the things away inside the plane because as he dives straight down uh, the negative g forces cause everything to rise up into the into his cabin so he has to stow everything away. So he puts away his map, whatever else he's got out in, his, uh, in the cabin with him, tells his, his, his rear gunner that he's about, they're going to make this dive. Um, he smears fedrine underneath his nose, which opens his, uh, his sinus cavities because there's going to be a rapid change in pressure. And in less than two minutes, he'll go from 20,000 feet down to sea level. And uh, he signals that he's about, to, he's about to dive by waggling his wings to his wingman, and he pushes over so less than two minutes, he'll go no more, no faster than two hundred and seventy-five miles an hour down to his target, and try to release, um, try to release his bomb uh, as as late as possible. It's one of the other counterintuitive things about dive bombing: the later that you can uh, attack, the more accurate you become, uh, because you have the 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 your enemy has the, the least chance of being able to dodge whatever it is you're going to to uh, send his way.
0: So it took an extraordinary amount of, of nerve, certainly, but also skill. If we're to look at the Japanese pilots that took part in Midway and the American pilots, who would you say had the most skilled air force?
2: Well, I think if you were to look at it in the round overall, most people would agree that, that the uh, Imperial Japanese Navy would shade it because they had more experience. Many of them had been fighting in, in, in China, and uh, their, their fighter pilots, their torpedo pilots particularly, were more skilled, uh, more effective. They had more effective equipment. The Japanese long-lance torpedo was, very, was devastating in a way that the American torpedo wasn't. When it comes to the dive bombers, people will disagree on this. But I think Steve and I are of the view that actually the U.S. dive bombers uh, uh, were better uh, in the sense that they actually uh, did a better job. They were... Uh, In a plane which was more effective, was more rugged, the Japanese plane, the Aichi Val, had certain advantages, but it was less effective. Uh, And most particularly, it carried a smaller bomb, 500 pounds. And so that does make a difference uh, as well. So while uh, Japanese dive bombers do uh, score hits Uh, on the um, Yorktown during the battle. It's actually the Japanese torpedo pilots who who really finish her off.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
2: And if that were to be the case, then one would hope that like Midway, we have prepared aviators, we have good equipment and good preparation. So to that extent, the, the lesson or the legacy of Midway is still relevant today.
0: As you said earlier, there were a lot of really striking accounts by people who, who lived through this battle. I wonder if you could share any moments from those eyewitness accounts that really stood out to you.
3: There's a great exchange between Dick Best, who's a pilot who from the Enterprise, who uh, scored a hit on the Akagi with a 1,000-pound bomb, um, and he, in some ways, you could say, single-handedly destroyed that carrier. There was an interview... Um, I listened to w- with with him. He talks about seeing cannon fire from a zero. He talks about seeing the cannon fire um, coming towards his plane, and it looked as if someone was throwing oranges at him. It's deadly, but he thinks of it in this in such a domestic way. One of the other pilots talks about um, Clarence Dickinson talks about the seeing seeing someone shooting at you and thinking of it as. These jewel, winking jeweled eyes, winking jeweled eyes um, flashing at him. So, yeah, there was a lot of remarks like that, um, which, which are just they're very rich.
2: I think the image that really stuck in my mind were the descriptions from Dusty Glyas and Clarence Dickinson of the attack on the Kaga, which was the, the ship attacked by the largest number of dive bombers. And the moments after the bomb strikes home then followed by these intense explosions uh, which erupt, sending elevators and aeroplanes and so on, hundreds, not the aeroplanes, but the elevator, uh, uh, high up into the sky, billowing smoke and and, and sort of orange-reddish flame, really sort of infernal images, almost. Um, And your mind then goes back to thinking about the people, the, the Japanese uh, sailors and, and airmen who are down below what they're going through. And actually, a large part of our book is devoted not merely to the five minutes or so of the attack, but then the much longer aftermath as the Japanese battle uh, to save their carriers. And it's, uh, it's probably the richest account, the most detailed account of that immediate aftermath.
0: Well, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that, because obviously the the dive bombers, they really grab the attention. It's the drama. But obviously, as you say, there were many people staffing those aircraft carriers that they took off from and they attacked. What was the experience of being on board one of these massive aircraft carriers like during Midway?
2: Initially, it's it's routine. And we know from the Japanese accounts that the start of the battle is going very well in the sense that wave upon wave of American attacks has been launched against them from Midway Island itself, but also from the American carriers. And these initial attacks are made either by poorly trained, inexperienced bomber crews, or by well-trained, but uh, badly armed torpedo crews. And they're all essentially shot down with really very little uh, Japanese loss. And so the descriptions on the Japanese side of of their uh, fighter aircraft, the combat air patrol being constantly refueled, uh, the crewmen coming up, effectively high-fiving the the pilots and cheering them on, and everything is going swimmingly. And then suddenly, in the space of just a few minutes, everything changes. Um, And this hits the individual Japanese in different ways. Some of them are on deck, and they just see these little black objects falling down on them. Others are are below deck. Some of them are even, you know, it's pathetic in a sense, are in the lavatory, uh, and so on, uh, when these bombs strike. And some of the pilots are in their ready rooms. Uh, One of them is eating rice balls and meatballs, and suddenly just a whole gust of flame comes erupting uh, into the room. So it's a a highly traumatic and, and, and violent experience. And the problem for the Japanese is that they've invested much less effort in fire control and damage control than the Americans did. So once their carriers were hit, uh, they turned very quickly into fireballs. And although the amount of time that each of them took to sink varied, it it was basically game over within a few minutes.
0: And what were the chances of survival for those on board like?
2: Well, it varied whether you were a crewman or whether you were an aviator. Uh, We know from the Japanese sources that once it was clear that you'd have to abandon ship, that in each case, the naval aviators were regarded as being the, the primary assets. I mean, that's what the carriers were there for. Uh, and so they were given preferential treatment uh, for the evacuation, for, for abandoning ship. Uh, and the, the ordinary crewmen seem to have accepted that. Um, there, there doesn't seem to have been any protest. People saying, you know, why is he going and I'm, and I'm last, so to speak. Uh, and we know from the casualty list that, that contrary to myth, The loss among the naval aviators wasn't that large, uh, but what was really critical was the loss of, you know, experienced maintenance men, because, of course, what makes uh, this kind of system work is not just the naval aviators, but the people who refuel the planes, uh, who rearm them, and so on. They're sometimes as difficult to replace as the actual pilots.
3: Something else I I would add to that is um, these ships, you know, they were enormous, so Um, the, the U S, uh, Yorktown class, it was about, um, 800 feet long, uh, with over 2000 souls. And, and the, the Japanese carriers were somewhat similarly sized. The Soryu class was a little shorter, but, and had about half that number of men, but in in every case there was over a thousand souls aboard. And so, you know, that is an, an incredible amount of people all, together in this you know in the, on this on this metal boat out there or a ship i should say um uh, at, at sea and they would often go to sea for um for weeks or if necessary months at a time and um so it was uh you know it was um like a floating city and I, I suppose along with it we we talk in the book about the kind of social dynamics of all of that and the way that allowed them to accomplish a great deal, but also it's, it, 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 it sort of encouraged an enormous amount of anxiety as well at times, because everyone, you were always on parade, you know, you were always being watched and, um, sort of measured off. People were seeing, you know, who, who's, who's flying the best today. Who's, uh, who's missed their target. Um, uh, you know, you guys were over, not wanting to admit they were lost aboard ship. Cause there, it's an absolute labyrinth. We had the, we had the chance to go and visit, um, some World War II-era carriers out on the West Coast. And they are, they are incredibly complex machines. I mean, very um, uh, astounding. Um, and and they just they rise up like a skyscraper in front of you at the harbor when, and you go inside and, you know, it's, thankfully you've got someone to show you where you're meant to go. Um, but, yeah, it was, uh, it's incredible.
2: Can I just add one thing to, to what Steve uh, was talking about with respect to the performative nature of life on a carrier? One particularly good example of this is landing, and you know it's the simplest thing. But the simplest thing, as Clausewitz says in in, in war, the simplest thing is very difficult. Actually, getting back to your carrier, even under normal conditions, was not straightforward. It, it's a very hard thing to do. And in order to learn lessons from failed landings, uh, they very often filmed the landing. And so the area uh, on the bridge from which this was done was known as Vulture's Row. And you knew as a pilot you were in trouble if the cameramen got particularly excited because (laughs) they were then straining to get a better angle uh, on your imminent misfortune. Uh, So I think it requires a particular sort of, of nerve and confidence to, day in, day out, perform the same maneuver with very often, you know, dozens or even hundreds of people watching you. Um, So it all added to the stress of a naval aviator.
0: How do we reach the eventual U.S. victory at Midway? Is it uh, a victory won by, uh, you know, a thousand little moments, or are there any key turning points that you would identify?
3: One way to answer that question is to say the the U.S. victory began in 1934 when uh, Edward Heinemann Designs the SBD Dauntless, the plane that um, is so critical to the U.S. victory. To it's the plane that delivers the ordnance onto the Japanese carriers on the morning of the of 4 June 1942. So, I, and I know that's not exactly what your question is getting at, but are, it's important to consider this uh, the, the the kind of deep background to the war. There's a way in which the, that battle it, you have to see it as a culmination. Of so much uh, hard work, preparation, and skill, it's not just about um, uh, delivering ordnance on time and on target. It's also about the culmination of all of these different things working together. So that's one way of answering the question. It's to say that you know this this critical moment. It was one. It was one back in the 1930s.
2: The other two things I would add would be mistakes made on the Japanese side, uh, which is really, first of all, the strategic error of constructing a plan that made all kinds of assumptions about American behaviour, which in fact were not realised. It was an arrogant plan. It didn't really take into account uh, the American ability to to respond. They expected the Americans essentially just to walk into the trap that they'd set for them. But there are also important tactical mistakes on the day, which are too numerous uh, to list uh, in all detail, but... Things like uh, failure to conduct uh, adequate reconnaissance for one reason or another, but also decisions taken by the Japanese commander uh, on the spot, Admiral Nagumo, uh, not to launch the aircraft that he did have ready against American targets which had been identified. For various reasons, he decided to hold back until he had what, what is called a balanced strike force of dive bombers, torpedo bombers, and covering fighter aircraft, whereas it probably would have been more advisable to have launched what he had at the moment that he'd identified at least uh, one of the American carrier groups. And finally, of course, there is the the moment, uh, the five minutes or so, uh, because it depends exactly on how you calculate it, the, the five minutes when the American dive bombers strike and hit three out of the four carriers. So it's a sort of dramatic reversal. You know, at a certain point in this uh, mid-morning, the Americans are losing the Battle of Midway, and five minutes later, uh, they're winning it. And that is a turnaround that is delivered entirely by the dive bomber force.
0: So let's move on to the legacy of the battle. How decisive or significant actually was the U.S. victory at Midway? Does it does it deserve its reputation as a as a key turning point in the battle for the Pacific?
2: We would argue yes, because it essentially tears the heart out of the Kido Butai, out of the Japanese striking force. So four of their six main carriers are sunk. That said, uh, we acknowledge, of course, that there are later battles, which are also very important. So if we were looking at, say, the attrition of Japanese naval aviators, that's certainly larger later in the year and beginning of the following year in the Solomons. If we're looking at damage to the Japanese surface navy, probably uh, later still. But in terms of actually changing the dynamic, Midway is, is uh, we would argue, uh, pretty much unquestioned.
3: Another way of making this point is if you read James Jones's autobiographical account of the war. James Jones, he was um, a soldier. He he's sort of most known now for writing. Thin Red Line, and so it was a trilogy of novels about the Pacific War and his experience there. But he he writes writes an autobiography. It's called World War, Two. Easily enough, he was actually at Pearl Harbor during the attack in December of forty one, and he talks about what that experience was like. And he he says that it was among all the things that that were destroyed in the attack uh, and the loss of lives over two thousand um, Americans killed. He says that uh, it was an enormous psychological. Uh, advantage the Japanese gained after that uh, battle, which lasted, it essentially ends up lasting until the Battle of Midway, because that's the first great victory that the Americans are able to say, we this this is a war that, that we can that we can handle, and so I, I think in that respect, you could say it was a, it was a very important turning point.
0: In the years and the decades since we've seen the, the Battle of Midway shown on screen most recently in Roland Emmerich's 2019 film Midway, how is it remembered today in, in the US and in Japan? And do you think that those memories are, are accurate or fair?
2: The memory of, of the battle has, has shifted over time. The, the initial focus really, interestingly enough, was on the torpedo bombers, And right at the beginning as well, there was quite a lot of emphasis on the um, high-level bombers uh, who got back first to base and claimed victory, as it were. So the role, it's quite interesting that the role of the dive bombers has come into focus more effectively only in the last maybe 40, 50 years or so, and in particular in the last maybe 30 years. So in in military terms, the importance of Midway uh, has shifted. In Japan, the battle was initially uh, actually blanked. It was basically ignored. The survivors uh, from the battle have, uh, w- were, were essentially locked up. and um, They weren't allowed to see their relatives for quite a while. Uh, and then the loss of the carriers was essentially um, sort of dribbled out, um, never was never really acknowledged. During the Second World War, really, Midway didn't make much of a, a mark in Japan. Then, of course... After 1945, it became part of you know, this sort of saga of the Japanese defeat in, in, in many movies, uh, some of them recycling, actually, not only the same material, but some of the same footage. But the fact that the battle is, is still present in Japanese, uh, in the Japanese imagination is evident from the fact that act- there are ships in the Japanese Navy today named after uh, ships that fought in the battle, like the Soryo uh, and like the Kaga. So, obviously, uh, something has remained.
3: I, it's funny because <laughs> I was sort of hesitating to answer your question. I think it's funny because, um, you know, you ask a historian, is something remembered correctly? And they're probably always going to quit, they're going to have a problem with whatever someone says because it's always more complex. You know, there's always another angle that you need to appreciate. I think that it's it's strange. It's, you know, in some ways, wars, they never end, you know, and, and the memory of them is all part of the. the the, the war itself and, and I think reading some of the, the firsthand accounts and even some of the letters, I think there is a way in which we, it's hard to appreciate the aggression uh, that's felt by, I mean, in this case, the sailors and the airmen, um, the, th- that they feel towards the enemy, the respect that they feel towards the enemy. It's hard to appreciate these things from a distance i suppose as well um the thrill the rush uh, of war that um the excitement of it um that is often something that's hard to appreciate um as well from a distance i'm not sure if if some of the contemporary representations are are able to convey those things
2: the other thing i would add is that it's Gained a certain um, salience also in, in current uh, U.S. political debate, because of course we're now back in a situation of rising tension in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, you've got a new challenger power in the 1930s and 1940s. It was Imperial Japan. Now it's the People's Republic of, of China, which of course has built an enormous navy and whose uh, blue-water ambitions are, are well known. Uh, and so there's a lot of discussion within the Beltway in Washington about, you know, will there be a new Pearl Harbor, sort of a surprise attack or a big U.S. defeat? And can we rely on there being another Midway? And the point that we make in our book is that actually you cannot rely on having another Midway, that Midway was the product of many different factors, but not least of them was military preparedness in time of peace. The battle itself was fought... Largely with the peacetime Navy, everybody who flew pretty much in uh, one of the Dauntlesses had uh, qualified before the war. Certainly the, the, those who were the, the aces, like Dusty Glyce and Clarence Dickinson, Richard Best and others, they, they were longer serving. The weapon systems were developed before the war. The Dauntless, as Steve said, designed back in 1934, all of the carriers built and launched before the war. And so we, we tend in the West to tell ourselves a comforting story about the Second World War, which is roughly one that says something like professionals make a mess of it for the first few years, and then talented amateurs come in. That's that's very much the way the British uh, see the war, for example. Well, Midway wasn't like that. Midway was actually fought by the peacetime U.S. Navy, um, and the argument we, we make in the book is that you know there may not be an opportunity for talented amateurs. Uh, to do their stuff. We, we may be looking at a very quick conflict, God forbid, there being one. And if that were to be the case, then one would hope that like Midway, we have prepared aviators, we have good equipment and good preparation. So to that extent, the, the lesson or the legacy of Midway is still relevant today.
0: That was Brendan Sims and Stephen McGregor. Their book is The Silver Waterfall, How America Won the Pacific War at Midway. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.